David Feldman is never anything but professional, so we didn't mention that we're also very close friends. <laughs> so thank you very much, David. And uh, when writing on this subject, this painful, as you say, malign narrative, I didn't think it appropriate to celebrate in the way that we do so well at Queen Mary the books of our colleagues. We have a fantastic way of sort of discussing them, drinking wine over them and whatnot. But I must confess, it is quite nice to have an occasion to talk about it nonetheless. It is so interesting, and particularly in the distinctive context of the, the Pears Institute, because I know the Pears Institute draws uh, more than most institutes, really, from a very, very wide uh, sort of hinterlands of supportive and supporting uh, uh, interested audience. I'm really delighted to see not only people that I know, but many people that I do not know, who I assume are interested readers and interested followers of the important work uh, of the Institute. So this is the uh, cover of the book, and um, it's, it's rather wonderful to be able to, it was rather wonderful that a work I wanted to do in any case found a home with Penguin because, as David said, it just made it sort of something that, a book that can be used in the classroom, that is accessible, and all those m many thousands of decisions and translation as to how accessible really to make it. So when, uh, when uh, somebody has a uh, feel is it feels something in their viscera, do you say they have a gut feeling or not? That sort of level of literally every word is a challenge in translation. But more about that later. So um, it's uh, the, this book, which I'm just so delighted to have out at last, is a product of six years of work, uh, during which I worked in all sorts of modes. I worked lonely in uh, the library with the manuscript, but I also worked within a network that was enabled by the uh, AHRC, a sort of network that uh, enabled me to organize a number of workshops and to bring wonderful experts, several of them in the, in the room, people who are experts on manuscripts, people who are experts on Jews, on England, on Norwich, and so on, in order to support my work. And I hope that my ample acknowledgements uh, just give some sense of uh, how, how grateful I am, the acknowledgements at the, in, in, at the end of the book. But just let's start and just introducing you to this subject of um, the child murder accusation, the ritual murder accusation, the blood libel, so many names invoked so frequently and sadly more frequently in recent decades than for a long while. Um, when I talk to people sometimes, you know, in schools or just, you know, talk to people uh, about this and introduce the subject and I say, where do you think that the first child murder story against Jews developed. Sort of many say it was probably in Germany or in Russia. Many say it must have been on the continent. And some say it probably was there from the time of the Gospels. Well, none of that is true. But uh, in order to know exactly, or to know as well as we can where it begins, it really takes quite a lot of hard work. And we're particularly lucky in having this sole surviving manuscript. So here, let's look at a few numbers about the text I shall be discussing. There's one surviving manuscript alone, which made my, uh, my, my work somewhat easier. And it was found in 1891, more later. It was the copy that we possess was probably copied around 1200, judging by handwriting. The, book, uh, the work is divided into seven books. Its title is The Life and Passion of William of Norwich. Passion meaning, in the Middle Ages, uh, suffering or suffering unto death. So it stands there for the martyrdom. It's 44,500 words long in Latin, so of course in translation it will be longer, it is longer. 
It was composed by its author, Thomas of Monmouth, um, for about, over about 23 years, that is most of his prime. And it tells the story of the life and death and aftermath of a boy, uh, William of Norwich, whose body was found in 1144 in a forest just outside Norwich, Thorpe Wood. And uh, the text, this text aims to tell the story of the boy's life unto death, to describe his death as a death at the hands of the Jews, and then to tell, and this is by far the majority of the text, is to tell uh, over a hundred miracle stories, miracles wrought by the boy's body at his tomb, and sometimes merely by the invocation of his name. So here is just an image of the top of the first uh, folio, the first page of uh, this manuscript. Even those who don't know Latin and don't habitually look at 12th century manuscripts, you can see that it's written out really beautifully. It made my life much, much uh, easier. It was very easy to read and it was very easy to uh, uh, transcribe. And we get to know this, as I said, we get to know this text uh, in 1891 thanks to the, um, well, first the efforts of M.R. James. M.R. James will be known to you from his now exceedingly sort of popular, again, uh, uh, ghost stories, sort of the perfect reading for uh, winter holidays and whatnot. And um, who, a, a, a writer, as you know, who's really used his expertise in medieval art and medieval manuscripts to create these really, really scary and freaky uh, stories, you know, with, uh, with manuscripts dripping with poisonous ink and uh, whispering cloisters and whatnot. So he really used that sort of medieval, his, his day job, in order to illuminate his, um, his, uh, these stories. And they are still extremely effective. So um, he, when he was invited and he found, and I'll explain later how towards the end, when he, he found the manuscript and he read the first page as we saw, and it says there, this is the life and passion of William of Norwich. He knew exactly where he wanted to go to share the good news. He contacted a man who, as you see, was 40 years or so older than him, a retired vicar from uh, Norfolk, Augustus Jessup, a retired vicar, school teacher, uh, a headmaster, uh, he was an antiquary, a local historian. He had at his at his death, when they did a sort of bibliography, it's over 900 items items in publications, small and large. So he he writes to Augustus Jessup and tells him, guess what I've found? And Augustus Jessup writes back, and we have the letters coming from Jessup to him, saying, oh, could you bear putting it in a bag and holding it, bringing it under your arm on the train and showing it to me? So obviously the younger man visited the older, and together over the subsequent months of 1891 into 1892, they decided this has to be published. Now, it's really interesting because one of the abiding uh, uh, themes in their discussion is that this is something Romans do, that is, Catholics do. It was a nasty story from the Middle Ages. We enlightened Anglican Victorian gentlemen. It is our duty as scholars to have it published and published properly, but this is really a story for which they don't see any need to apologize. They actually decry it and see it as exactly the evils of a, uh, a popish world, clearly about, you know, that, that they were happy to, to see passed from, uh, uh, passed from hegemony. Um, so they come together, they convince Cambridge University Press uh, to publish it. It's published in 1896. So it exists as a text with translation with totally sparse notes. I mean, 
This is unbelievable. These guys clearly knew their Bible, their classics by heart. They had Latin that I could never dream of having. And yet they do not provide notes, which is very strange. It obviously shows they also thought that a lot of the people likely to read it would have had those skills as well. In any case, so one of the, one of the, 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 the duties and the pleasures of working on the volume. Anthony, could you just show the size? Because I know you have a copy there. So a lot of that is actually the notes to the text to help people in the classroom or just the interested reader or just the non expert historian to uh, uh, make sense of the sort of words and comments that a 12th century monk's, monk uses as a matter of course. It's quite interesting also in their writing about the text that they develop, and particularly Jessup, who has to do the translations. He really confronts Thomas of Monmouth, our, our author, day in, day out, just like I did uh, later. Uh, he, he, they really develop an attitude towards him. He's a blackguard, he's a rascal, he's a liar, etc., as they go along translating, which is sort of interesting. So um, the text they're dealing with is, as I say, uh, the unique story, the earliest story that we know. And Thomas of Monmouth writing probably from in 1150 when he first reaches Norwich and his name suggests, we know nothing else about him, that he came maybe from South Wales. Uh, he is his attempt to reconstruct a cold case. The body of a boy of the boy William of Norwich was probably found in 1144 in Thorpewood as described. But in 1150, this new monk of the cathedral priory finds, and he's appalled to find, that this event has been sort of passed from people's memory, or at least is only really nurtured by a few members of the family and adherents, that the Jews hadn't been punished, that the, uh, that the boy doesn't have a proper cult as deserving a martyr, which he judges the boy to have been killed by Jews. And so he goes on to... He has a project, and that is what he does for the next few years. In fact, at some point, he calls himself the secretarius, which I like to think of as a sort of the agent or promoter of the cult, a new cult for the dead boy. But he does so from six years' distance at the very least. So really remember that when you consider what I say next. So he decides to treat him as, as, as one ought uh, through the genre, the very well-established genre, the style of writing of hagiography, to write a life of a Christian saint or a Christian martyr. And such hagiographies usually begin, normally begin, with a story of the very early life, birth, a very early life, and very often even the, the backstory before even the conception of the saint or the martyr, there are certain portents or signs. And so it is, sorry, and so it is, his mother has a dream, his mother has a dream, and actually we'll be here together. She saw indeed as she slept herself and her father, Woolward the priest, who was a famous man at the time, standing together on a road when she observed a light on the ground before their feet and a fish turning, commonly known, commonly known or called a lux, that's a salmon. The fish indeed had 12 red fins and as if sprinkled with blood. So she said to her father, father, I see a fish, but I wonder greatly how it reached here and how it can live in such a dry place. Her father said to her, take it, daughter, and put it in your lap. Once she had done so, the fish was seen moving in her lap and growing little by little until the lap could no longer contain it. And so it slipped away and coming out of her sleeve, it suddenly sprouted wings and flew away. And the father, who we are told is some sort of 
Anglo-Saxon, well, obviously Anglo-Norman England by 1144, uh, uh, or, or I should say 1136, uh, so as before he was born. Um, but he, he is some sort of seer or interpreter of dreams. And he says, you know, by all means, dearest daughter, that you are pregnant and rejoice in joy because you will indeed be giving birth to a son who will be accompanied by the highest honor on earth and will be raised to the height of the clouds, greatly exalted in heaven. So like Samuel's mother and Jesus's mother and many mothers of great men before, uh, there is a dream and there is an announcement and there is a portent. So... The boy, the boy, is born in the village of Haveringland. Show you just the parish church there and that nice little carving, and uh, just seven uh, miles from Norwich. And there he is raised in a family. It is telling that both parents have Anglo-Saxon names, but they're quite aspirational because they call their kids William and Robert, sort of good French names. They're going to go into the world. And so indeed does little William, when he's eight years old, he's sent into the city from the safe, cozy household in the countryside to train to become uh, a skinner, to become a tanner. This is skinning, tanning in England, medieval England, is a massive industry. It's really, really big. There's a good living to be had, and he is sent to train in it. And he was a good boy. He learned his psalms. He, he was devout. He, he, he fasted a few days a week and so on, we are told. These are all very common ways of talking about saints or martyrs in the making. He also, also frequented the church most willingly. He, er, he learned letters, psalms, and prayers, and worshipped with the greatest reverence all that was related to God. Since divine grace preceded him in all things, he had a zeal for diligent study. And just as he was gentle to all, he was loved by all and was vexatious to no one in any matter. So this is the movement from the cozy home into the dangerous city. And we are told by our author Thomas of Monmouth that the boy uh, had in fact had dealings with Jews because he was really great at the trade. He quickly trained, was far better than all the other apprentices, we are told. He had these little nimble fingers, so the Jews hired him. Then, while he was living in Norwich, the Jews who dwelt there at the time chose him above all other skinners for the repair of mantles, furs, and other things of this kind, which they either had as surety against loans, or which they themselves used. For indeed, they considered him highly suitable, either because they saw him as simple and skillful, or because, led by miserliness, they reckoned they could pay him a lower wage. But I think it is more likely that by the wish of divine providence he was already destined to the martyrdom for centuries and so was drawn to it step by step by degrees. So on the one hand, it feels really cheap Jews using a kid who isn't protected by the minimum wage. On the other hand, but there is a bigger story here into which all of this fits. So the boy is known to the Jews and if the Jews are going to commit some sort of crime against this boy, then they will have to uh, gain access to him. And we're told by Thomas that his family warned the boy that not have anything to do with the Jews. So maybe summoning him openly wouldn't work, according to this narrative line. And so next we hear that as Easter approaches, the Jews commission a messenger some sort of person to do the dirty work for them. And the idea is to promise the boy a real, really great adventure, a job over the holidays, and to earn money too. So um, the next stage in our, 
in, in this story. And again, remember, this is Thomas of Monmouth reconstructing a tale for the life of the boy found in the wood. Um, the next stage that we have is really one of tremendous inventiveness. In it, the, um, uh, we have an emissary who approaches the boy and convinces him it would be ter terrific fun to spend the days around Easter working for uh, the Archdeacon's uh, cook. But then the problem is that mum is expecting to see the boy over the holidays. So mum has to be convinced. And this is, I think, an absolutely extraordinary piece of writing. I hope you'll agree. So promising much, that son of perdition, that is the nasty, the, 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 the person who's going to inveigle the boy, that son of perdition easily enticed the childish mind with his empty promises. But at first, he could in no way extract the mother's approval in the matter. The innocent boy agreed to the insistent traitor, but the mother resisted, her guts warning her, fearing for her son with maternal instinct. Now the traitor, and then the mother. He begs, she refuses. He begs, but only to fail. She refuses, lest she may lose him. Sort of slapstick developing here. He claims to be the archdeacon's cook, but she does not believe at all. Between her and him, as between a sheep and a wolf, a ewe and wolf. Who first would you think the strongest in the fight over the third, that is, the lamb in the middle? The lamb was in the middle, the sheep on one side, the wolf on the other. The wolf stands in order to tear and devour. The sheep stands forth to rescue and save. And I thought some images from the period just showing you it's really the wolf and the sheep that are a very scary encounter. So I think this is a terrifically inventive uh, um, 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 text here. It just shows you also some of the style that in parts of this text, Thomas really tries to show the sort of rhetorical training he must have had in some school in England before he reached uh, Norwich. Okay, so um, the boy is now um, in the clutches of the messenger, the emissary of the Jews, and we reach, now that he's with them, the really most horrific part of the story, and utterly new, a story never told before. So to remind you, we are in the week leading up to Easter, a busy time for everyone, Christians, and of course very often coincides with Passover as it did in that year. So the next, and this is really the heart of the innovation of this text, is, um, is um, the boy arriving in the house of the Jew where he has been delivered. Then the Jews received the boy kindly, like an innocent lamb led to the slaughter. And he was ignorant of what business was being prepared for him, and he was kept until the morrow. And so, following daybreak, which was their Pascha that year, after the appropriate chants of the day were finished in the synagogue, the leaders of the Jews met in the house of the aforementioned Jew, and while the boy William was eating, fearing no treachery, they suddenly seized him and humiliated him in various wretched ways. For some of them held him from behind, others inserted into his open mouth a torture instrument known in English as a teasel, I'll show you one in a minute, and fixed it with straps either side of his jaws to the back of his neck where they made a very tight knot. Next, they took a short rope about the thickness of a little finger and made three knots in places marked on it and encircled that innocent head from forehead to back. In the center of the forehead, they pressed a knot as they did at each temple. So this is a very odd form of killing, killing or, or torture, 
torture by not. And all my attempts with archaeologists and experts in law and experts in torture, yes, they exist. I mean, in academia, um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, have availed. And this is really very, very special stuff, unusual stuff. As to the teasel, the teasel, as you know, is pro probably is, is either this sort of thorny plant or the sort of man-made um, uh, imitation of it, and it's used in the process of finishing off, of finishing off cloth in order to pull out uh, impurities. But you can imagine, either way, it's a nasty thing to imagine in a tender mouth of a child, a child sort of made silent, trussed up, tied up in this manner, and ultimately also hung from a doorpost in the room. So those who have a body have to dispose of it, or a body, a, a criminously killed body, have to dispose of it. So just to remind you that the Jews, ah, this is where I get to use the, does anybody see a red dot? Yes, yes, excellent. Uh, if we just look for a minute at the River Wensum there, Beatrice will be very familiar to you. She's from Norwich. Uh, big castle, that's the sort of cathedral area. And this is where the Jews lived, right between the new borough, the French borough, and the castle. So anything that happens in a Jewish house could easily be discovered. They're very much in the heart of the city. So if you have a body, what do you do with it? Is the storyline, as it were. How might it unfold? So, you know, somebody not very bright says, oh, let's just throw it in the latrine or just in the bin or something. And clearly, what Thomas of Monmouth in his text is doing is not only imagining how the Jews killed the boy, but even their deliberation amongst themselves as to how to dispose of him. So he speaks in the voice of Jews. And this, and after clearly somebody said, oh, let's throw it just into the, sewer, the sewers under the house, he says, um, one of them of greater authority gave the following advice. Listen to me, brothers. I consider it utterly pointless for us, and I fear greatly the danger that uh, which would follow in the future if the body of this Christian were to be drowned in our privy or concealed in the earth within the area of our houses. Since, indeed, we dwell in rented houses, if within a month or sooner we move away from these dwellings for some reason arising to others, I fear what might follow after our departure, and I would be greatly amazed if what I fear were not to happen. So it's all very well, but the life of a Jew in mid-12th century uh, uh, Europe is a changeable one. So anything can happen, so we may well throw it down uh, the latrine, but it would be found, and he argues on. For once we have left, the Christians who will move in will sh assuredly scrutinize everything, and one cannot believe that they would not, either to shame us, make a big fuss of cleansing the sewers, Ugh, the Jews were here, or just fill up the old ones and dig new ones where they wished. What then? It is likely and easy then for the body to be found by the cleaners or the diggers. Having found it, in no way would the deed be imputed to Christians, but the blame for the whole affair would undoubtedly be transferred to us. And so he advises to go out in the dead of night and to leave the boy's body in Thorpe Wood, just to remind you of that map, which is just there to the east of the cathedral across the river, a marginal land, Marginal lands are interesting areas always, and in this case in Thorpewood, we know that there was a community of lepers that lived under the, uh, served and sort of nurtured and cared for by a, a pious woman, Legada. So the body is left there, it's carried in a sack 
on a horse at night. And there is a witness. It's a witness who doesn't speak in 1144, but does indeed speak for Thomas or for Thomas to hear in 1150. So this is just one of the many ways in which Thomas shows himself to be better informed than anyone was, could have been, in 1144. So, as I say, a group of lepers and a pious lady uh, were the first discoverers of the body inasmuch as they saw some miraculous lights arriving from the place. But they are not people of the world. They're out there in the marginal space and they just leave it and thank the God for a miracle. But the next person to see the... Um, to see to find the body is a much more professional sort of guy and he comes on the Friday before e on the Saturday before Easter and his name is Henry of Sprouston and he's the forester and as you all know the, particularly in the Middle Ages the forest and woods are seen as a massive resource that are tended that are policed very very heavily uh, for because the use of the timber and, and the acorns and the undergrowth and everything that, that, that happens in the wood is, is extremely valuable so there is this whole cadre of sort of officials like this forester. And this Henry of Sprouson passes by, sees it, looks at it, thinks this looks very odd, but he's too busy to get for Easter into the city. So he just leaves the body there just slightly covered and goes into the city. But clearly this movement through the forest in the, in the build-up for Easter, which is a highlight of the year in every possible way in a Christian community, there's preaching, there's... Um, there are processions, there's all the penance to be done, and, and ultimately there's also communion on Easter Day. So uh, he says, I'll do it after Easter, just, you know, nothing much will happen beforehand. But rumors clearly begin to circulate. They begin to circulate, and of course there's also the human cry about where is this boy who's disappeared. There's a wailing mother in the story. There are relatives looking for the boy. There's coming and going and coming and going between the forest and the city. And ultimately, there are strong rumors circulating. So strong, and they are indeed led by uh, a Godric, the boy's, um, uh, the boy's uh, uh, maternal uncle, uh, an uncle by marriage, who is also a priest. So he's sort of quite well informed, quite confident, and he's set up as the guy who really gets the accusation against the Jews going. And being Easter, and being the time when everybody's in the city, lots of visitors, lots of, uh, an all gathering, of course, in the cathedral, if they are ecclesiastes or not, there's another image there, there's actually a golf course now just on the other side. <laughs> it's now called Mouse Old Heath. Uh, the uncle comes to the cathedral of, of, of Norwich. I mean, I always think of the cathedral is just massive, such an extraordinarily powerful place. And it's actually really new. I mean, well, I mean, relatively new. It's, uh, it was built in the 1090s. It's not one of the really old cathedrals of Anglo-Saxon England. It's a new arrival. And uh, it's, it's impeccably built, as you see. And I'm sure many of you have visited it. And a lot happens at it in it at any time, because it's one of these peculiarities of England that about half of the cathedrals of England were actually also monasteries. I mean, we usually think of monasteries as being far out in the countryside. In England, they developed a way in which cathedral communities <coughs> lived as monks, that is according to a monastic rule, hence we call it uh, Norwich Cathedral Priory, obviously up to the Reformation. So there are, there's monkish life going on, there's all the liturgy going on, and of course on Easter Day it's a very busy place and right after it the, um, the bishop usually summons a, um, 
a synod, a synod of the clergy and heads of religious houses in the region, but also of great visitors. We usually attend if there are any great visitors of ecclesiastical rank. And that is where the accusation is made. So given that nobody ever heard of anything like this happening before, what is the bishop to do? Well, actually, in England, which, as you know, is a much governed country, even in the 12th, well, in the 12th century, probably more better governed in some ways than today. Um, uh, um, in the 12th century, what you do is anything to do with the Jews, you, you, with the Jews, you approach the sheriff. And that, of course, and here a little segue just to say that, of course, the Jews... Um, the Jews arrived in England with the conquest, indeed with the conqueror, who had already great dealings with them in Normandy before, before 1066. They were given particular tasks and were protected as, as uh, servants of the crown who, who provided uh, specialist uh, money-changing financial and fiscal services. They were very closely scrutinized by that ever-vigilant representative of the crown, who is the sheriff in each one of the counties, county towns that they inhabited like Norwich. And as you see, uh, this particular sheriff, Sheriff of Norfolk and Suffolk, called John de Cheney, please hang on to that name. It's really, really important. Well, I think it'll be very important in about 20 minutes' time, or even more important in about 20 minutes' time. Uh, he, uh, he's summoned, and he turns up, and he says to the, so we are told, um, I don't see any evidence here. This is nonsense. There's no reason for the Jews to do it. I mean, absolutely not. And he goes, and the Jews are also protected in that castle, which still stands, as you know, the great castle uh, of Norwich, and uh, he protects them. And our uh, author, Thomas of Mono, says, yes, of course he does that, because they have, in fact, given him a big bribe, 100 marks of silver, which is over 66 pounds of silver, and hence he protected them. And we are also told that he died an excruciating death through bleeding through his anus, in 1146, two years later, uh, and thus he got his deserving punishment, because otherwise nobody really gets punished in this story so far. So nothing happens, and we have absolutely no trace in Jewish sources or any other sources that any sort of violence or anything of the kind actually occurred at the time in Norwich. But the bishop was not totally, uh, um, um, he didn't totally ignore the rumors and particularly the demands of the family to treat their son's death as something special. And so he allows the boy to be buried over there in the monk cemetery. You see right over there, outside, not inside, but nonetheless a special death. And that is where he buried. So at this moment, when the boy is buried, we're sort of like, reach the end of the first book and the f end of the reconstruction of the boy's pre-life pre life and death, the reconstruction of this cold case from materials that Thomas has to find, uh, visit, look for, elicit, in order to be able to convince his readers that although he wasn't there and it all happened six years ago, he nonetheless is telling a true story. And I've dwelt somewhat on detail just to give you the sense of just how meticulous is his work in creating just that. The rest of the text and the vast majority of the text is, as I said, a whole lot of miracles that occur. But in the next book, just after he finishes this almost like freestanding hagiography life of the boy, uh, life and death of the boy, he does get into a sort of polemical tone. He goes into a section where he says, a lot of people don't believe 
there are those who are not convinced by the story. There are those who, well, at the time, were indifferent to the extraordinary eruption of a chapter in Christian history in the middle of Norwich, and uh, that uh, now there are still those who are not convinced. So he lists the list of objections, that is the sort of things that the doubters say, that the boy, he was just a little boy, come on, he doesn't deserve to become a martyr, or even if he became a martyr, how do we know that he did it with, with intent, that he actually embraced his martyrdom, or, or, or why would Deuce even want to do this? And there is an answer to that as well, that this is part of a Jewish, a pan-European Jewish conspiracy that occurs at every Easter. That is the answer that he provides. So even the first miracle, and I'm not going to go through many miracles with you, although they're fascinating, just the one earliest miracle, as it were, uh, already shows you the way in which the book will go and why he continues to uh, compile it and collect it over until its end in 1173. Because these miracles are serving as proof of the story he's been trying to tell throughout. So just to give you a flavour of what it sounds like, around Michaelmas, some of the monks, in pious devotion, had transplanted to the head of the holy martyr's tomb a shrub which in summertime had already sprung forth in flowers in the cloister. Immediately its roots gripped the soil, its leaves revived, and after just a few days it flowered again, to the great amazement of all. So remember Michaelmas, that's very late September, right? All the flowers survived on the shrub up the feast of St. Edmund, 20 November, when a great storm of rain and wind shook off all but one. Its red colour and its height excelled above all others, and when all the rest had fallen off, it held its place on the top of the shrub and was preserved with divine approval from the rains, winds, snows, and winter frosts, and for many days remained on its branch. Inspired by the wonder, many people took pains to see the flower, and some of them attested to seeing it around Christmas time, too. That's quite something. And whoever is not habitually ungrateful, these double negatives are all over the place, but I've kept them. And who is not habitually ungrateful for divine favors would weigh up, should weigh up carefully that in this matter a mystery of divine operation was present. And so the rest of the book is really a series of such divine interventions, always reminding the readers that this is the proof of the original claim, the original claim that the boy was killed in the Jews. And I remember that when my publisher at Penguin finally read my translation, he said, hmm, the Jews sort of disappear after the first third. I think he thought of you know great sales in the context of Jewish history. But I mean, it is true, the Jews are the enablers of what is fundamentally a set of historical events that later occur uh, in the community itself. And just to give you also a sense that he develops as he goes along over these decades, as he does his work, he responds to, to new events. Um, uh, our Thomas of Monmouth, in one of the absolutely latest miracles that he recounts, uh, tells of uh, two very interesting cases of competition with other saints. There's one case of someone who goes to be cured at the very, very, very new and popular uh, Thomas Becket, 
And that doesn't succeed and ultimately comes and is cured when it comes back to East Anglia. But as interestingly, because, or even more interestingly, uh, this here is a, is a 12th century image of, as it were, the martyrdom of uh, Edmund King and Martyr, who was killed, as it were, by the Danes, and is the saint and patron and relic at Bury St. Edmunds, not far away. They, that he, he creates a very interesting miracle, or he tells a very interesting miracle, where someone is partly uh, partly miraculously relieved at uh, St. Edmunds, at Bury St. Edmunds, but that at Bury St. Edmunds he's told, and this miracle will be completed if you go to my colleague, I mean literally co-adjutor, co-worker in Norwich. So there are ways in which these, are, these miracles are fully polemical. They're polemical not just about the Jews who are the cause of it, but they're also sort of in a way polemical as against other competitors within the field. So this is, uh, so this is telling you the story arising from the text, sharing with you some of the methods that I've used, and uh, giving you a sense of its richness and, and its interest. But I also want to, uh, um, and I won't be too long with this, suggest another way of treating the text that is not so much about context and deep embeddedness, but it's actually about taking certain trajectories over time. So let's think of this text not so much in its embeddedness in Norwich, but as a set of influences that had an after history and left a legacy, hence the legacy in my title. So think of it as a story that then circulated, just the sole manuscript has survived, but it did circulate <laughs> to the extent that we have uh, three other cases known in England where at least chroniclers suggest that there was such an accusation. We don't have in the 12th century any evidence of violence, but across the channel in Blois in 1071, there is a famous accusation that is not, well, it, it's not exactly the same, but it's not dissimilar, so it is possible that it was known there as well. But what is absolutely clear that one of the contexts for dissemination of this story is the context of monastic houses like Gloucester and Barry and Worcester. I'll say something more about another network, this network, the Cistercian network as well. But in the 13th century, this is some things rather change. And when a story, when a child goes missing in the summer of 1255 in Lincoln, and there you see the famous uh, house known as the Jews' house in Lincoln, again from uh, the 12th century. Um, when it's told in 13th century Lincoln, that is a good 111, 110, 11 years after the case of Norwich, it is told to a different effect. And there, it's not just an accusation. Actually, to start with, there's no body at all, just a boy who's disappeared. But in a very particular context, with the involvement of King Henry III and his courtiers, and a particularly keen uh, religious presence, it was possible to tell the story in 13th century England in such a way that it actually led to executions. It actually led to the dragging of Jews to London, one in Lincoln, and then later to London for execution in the Tower. So something about the tenor of the reception of the story in 13th century England is different from the world within this, which this story was born. And there are many people in the room who have contributed to the understanding of the change in this religious culture in England. But just to give you a little soupçon of what it might belong to, don't forget that in 1290, only a few years after the case in Lincoln, the Jews are kicked out of England altogether. 
But as no one more than Anthony Bale has taught us that the Jews existed in the English imagination for many, many long centuries, or well, decades and centuries, even after they, after they were kicked out, the story of Lincoln was well enough known, at least to be invoked by that great teller of tales and spinner of tales, Geoffrey Chaucer in the late 14th century. And as Antony has shown, the story continues to be part of the lore, although there are no more Jews to accuse, it is known it is understood as it is on the continent. We have clusters of accusation in the Rhineland. We have a few cases in Aragon. And the interesting thing is that isn't often mentioned is that some of them just go nowhere. I mean, it's not at all nice for the accused Jews. They often spend long periods in prison until they are released. But not all cases of accusation are actually unfold unto a trial or an execution or indeed uh, 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 unbridled violence. Indeed, it is something that troubles. It troubles bishops, it troubles popes. The pope actually pr popes pr pronounce against it, but it still is there, it's available, it can be activated. And indeed, it seems to have been particularly effectively activated a number of times in the late 15th century. And this here uh, hand-painted print uh, uh, follows the case of 1475 in Trent, in Trent, in Trento, uh, which is, uh, as, as you know, in the Tyrol. But uh, what's interesting here is you see that a case that became a cause celebre, and actually there the humanist bishop was absolutely behind the accusation and encouraged it and encouraged the appalling torture and indeed confessions that were, as it were, had out of all these named Jews, and as you see, even a Jewess over there, ultimately spread really quickly throughout Europe, became known very widely thanks to the medium of print, so quickly, cheaply, and here we see a particularly, well, sort of attractive example in as much it's a colored print. And in Trent, you can still walk around the city today and see such, as, uh, you know, well, material culture such as this here, uh, relief. And it's exactly that late medieval uh, heritage that was often used again and again in later centuries, late medieval, early modern. Um, in large parts of Protestant Europe and Protestant world, this totally disappeared for many, many centuries. But then in anti-Semitic modernity, I mean, the very recent, the 20th century, uh, we have a number of cases where it is revived, and famously the, the Bayliss case of uh, 1911 in Kiev, where again, after trial and a worldwide campaign for, for, for his release, uh, the Jew Bayliss was indeed uh, released, and it came to nothing in that sense. And of course, um, a lot of uh, examples that arise in the current very uh, upsetting and unfortunate discourse of um, uh, Muslim anti-Semitism. So one strand we can take in this history of the story is to trace the story's evolutions into, indeed, ritual murder accusations that are connected with rituals and festivities and so on, as it not had been connected in the 12th century. Another little segue that you can take if you're so minded is actually just to trace it even just in the context of Norwich and Norfolk because it's actually quite interesting after the 13th century which sees late 12th and 13th century which sees a cult which sees a liturgy which sees uh, offerings at the shrine and so on it sort of declines which is not unusual with with shrines that they they rise and fall but there is, uh, in the late 14th century, the Skinners of Norwich decide to make the boy the, their patron saint. And so there's a revival of interest. And so we have a whole spate of, I think, eight surviving, uh, very fine Norfolk and North Suffolk um, 
um, um, screens, wooden screens, painted where the boy is inserted amongst other martyrs, uh, mostly early Christian martyrs. So, for example, like here in the center Norwich Church of St. John Madden Market, um, um, this here example alongside Agatha, or uh, this here, just him himself hanging in this way in Loddon in Norfolk, or indeed in North Suffolk, and I uh, alongside Lucy. So there's a sort of local history to be done to the influences, what happened at the Reformation, the dismantling, uh, but also the history of how the cathedral treats it, because even when I first came to this country in the 80s, I remember visiting it when it was still a shrine of little William, and it was sort of just there, a bit embarrassing. But since then, there's no question, Norwich and Lincoln and other cathedrals are confronting a lot of bits of their heritage and thinking what to do with this. It's part of history. You have to tell the story. How do you tell it? And I should say that actually Norwich Cathedral has been absolutely fantastic throughout my work, uh, holding workshops, supporting, etc. And in that sense, that's probably uh, quite a good story. And um, then there's another story, and with this I shall finish, which is actually taking the manuscript on a tour, in a way. So the manuscript copied around 1200 of a text written between 1150 and 1173 and to see what it tells us looking closely at him. And here we return to uh, Emma James. And Emma James, as I said, found it and got it in 1891. But he got it because a school chum had invited him to Brent Ely, which is just near Lavenham, uh, a parish in Suffolk, because there were a bunch of manuscripts there that looked really, really precious, but they were sort of moldering away in a cupboard and they felt really bad about it. So M.R. James, already famous, uh, uh, a famous expert in manuscripts and himself then the young uh, assistant keeper of the Fitzwilliam Museum, asked him to, came round, to come round, he came round, had a look at them and indeed said they're really good and arranged them to be bought by the Cambridge University Library where they still reside. So uh, just to remind you, and this is it. And you can see how it had mouldered at the top over there in any case. So um, I was trying to say, where is this from? Where is this from? Uh, it can't be from North Cathedral Priory because there was a really big fire there in the mid-13th century that destroyed practically all the books. Where is this from? And the more I learned, and the more I learned with the help of all my colleagues, I was able to see that this is a manuscript that was created in a Cistercian house. Now, many of you know what the Cistercians are, but for those who don't, just to say this was the most happening uh, monastic order founded in the very late 11th century, in the 12th century, really popular all over Europe. Just look at those, just look at those crosses, right? Those are Cistercian houses all over Europe around 1150. It's quite neat for us, 1150, all over and moving eastwards all the time. This is the happening... Uh, a challenging, uh, more rigorous, perceivably more, more, more rigorous order. And what's really important about it, it was run like an order. It was run with a center, a mother house, a mother house in Burgundy, and with annual gatherings of all the heads of the houses so they would all live the same life, keep themselves rigorous, keep themselves truly Cistercian rather than all houses going in different directions. So that also means they had the most amazing networks of communication. So, if my manuscript is a Cistercian manuscript, 
And that also helps explain how the story might have spread, because if you just leave it for a few Benedictine houses, as we saw, it doesn't go very far. The Cistercian network is really, really impressive. And it's not just because they all meet up. On the way, so like the English monks will stay with northern French monks and then central French monks and until they reach Burgundy, they all stay with each other. And what do you do in the evening? You tell stories. So it's a tremendous network for the dissemination of tales. <laughs> So my manuscript is Cistercian, but where is it from? I look for Cistercian houses in East Anglia. There's but one in Suffolk called Sibton, and of no particular interest. So I didn't think that would lead very far. So I look at the manuscript again, and it's a manuscript of, of, of our story and a few other stories as well. And I find, again, with help in another colleague, that it was marked in the late 16th or early 17th century by a particular collector William Howard of Naworth, very, very famous collector. Now, this guy uh, was, one of, uh, was a Catholic recusant. He lived in very dangerous times. Many members of his family were martyred themselves. He himself had two long spells in the Tower of London for his Catholicism. And after the second time, he decided, enough, I'm just going for the quiet life. And he retires to, to an estate in Cumbria that belonged to his wife's family. And he just starts being a Catholic from there, collecting books, collecting a lot of books from dissolved monasteries, from the dissolution of the monasteries some 70, 80 years earlier. He's a great collector. He had big chunks of Adrian's wall that he stole and put in his garden. And he had this lovely antique medieval rosary from about 1500. It's now in the V&A. And this time I shall actually approach. Uh, it's momentous, isn't it? And he had this fine antique rosary, two far less fine beads had it. One for a Cornish saint, I won't go in there, and one for our William. He had the, the this manuscript clearly under his hands, and it affected him. He read it, and don't forget that William is also his namesake. What I discovered much later in the day, thanks to a hint given to me by Nicholas Vincent, is that uh, he was the grandson of a man, of the man, Thomas Howard, uh, Duke of Norfolk, who in 1535 had bought, a lot of people bought monasteries in anticipation of their being dissolved. In 1535, he uh, bought the Cistercian house of Sipton in Suffolk, the sole Cistercian house in East Anglia. And that is a very good way of imagining how the manuscript, if produced in Sipton, would have reached him. So I went back to considering Sipton as the possible source of my manuscript. And as I got deeper into it, and you see here in its buried ruined choirs, standing there, it's 12th century glory. It was a house founded in 1150. And there I discovered in the narration of its foundation that it had been founded by one William Bacini at the bequest, at the request and with a bequest by his brother John Bacini, once sheriff of Norfolk and Suffolk. And that in the request to build the Cistercian Monastery in 1150, the dead sheriff had said, please build this monastery in order to expiate for my sins committed both during peace and during war while I was sheriff. So perhaps our bleeding sheriff had a change of mind. 
but that it definitely explains where a manuscript, I think, comes from. Now, some of you may have come here expecting me to give a genealogy of anti-Semitism. But I think that by studying anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, it really is not a story about Jews alone, or even above all. It is a story about the people who produce the hate, the violence, as they observe the Jews in their communities. And with this, I'll finish. Thank you. Thank you.